Please turn in your Bibles again to Ephesians chapter 5. As you're turning there, I want to say a special welcome to first-time visitors. I've noticed quite a few new people over the last few weeks. We will have a new members class. It doesn't mean you have to become a new member. When you come to it, it's just to explain to you what membership at Redeemer is about. And that'll be for the next four Sundays at 10 o'clock. And if you, when you walk in the sanctuary way, just go left. And it's probably going to be in the library, uh, the school, which is a bigger area for us to meet in. Um, if you would be so kind as to call the church office and let us know you're coming, that'd be great. But if you forget and remember next Sunday, you're still welcome to come. That's at 10 o'clock. So we'd love to have you. Um, I would like to direct us all now back to Ephesians. We've been in Ephesians for some time. This rich book is all about, uh, it's a celebration of God's saving grace to us sinners and all the benefits that come from being saved by his grace, this undeserved favor that we are shown because of Jesus as our advocate, our savior, who we are identified with. We are in Christ. It, it speaks to us as individuals being delivered from our sins and made to be in Christ, but it also speaks to us as the people of God, a redeemed community, a new community of redeemed sinners who are in Christ. And this is an expression of it when we come to worship him, but um, we are connected together as a, as a family of the redeemed. And this is a big part of what Ephesians is reminding us about and then giving us a way to live in light of who we are in Christ. So we've already covered this passage, but we covered it through the angle of marriage, Christian marriage, which it addresses, the role of the wife and the role of the husband in Ephesians 5, a classic passage, uh, a foundational passage in understanding these important roles. But the passage uses as a metaphor, or it uses marriage to picture the relationship between Christ and the church. And I really wanted to go back and focus on that particular perspective of the passage. It's so important to the whole of what the Bible teaches, Christ and his church. This is the most beautiful relationship that exists besides the Trinity. It's Christ and the church. And I want to spend, because of verse 32 of our passage, spend a week, uh, at least a sermon, looking at this important topic. So hear God's word as I read Ephesians 5. I'll read verse 22 down to verse 32. I'm going to end on that passage that I just mentioned. Uh, This will be where we'll get our lead or take our lead from this morning. This is God's holy word. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ 
and the church. Please bow with me as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, may all of us here gathered or joining online be completely struck struck with awe for Christ today. We openly confess our inability to fully fathom the love of Christ for us, His church. Please help us by Your Spirit's aid as we attempt to plumb the depths of this great mystery of Christ and the church. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now normally you know I like to start a sermon with an introduction or an illustration that sets up the subject of the text that we are studying. Now the passage that we are studying has been about marriage, and that would be the picture I would want to give. But the the full profundity of this passage puts me at a total loss as to how to start with some kind of illustration that the Bible doesn't already set up. When you consider the Apostle Paul is the one under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who says this mystery is profound and he's speaking of Christ and the church. If he says something's profound, it's really profound, more profound than I can relay. This is the Apostle who met the risen Christ in the road to Damascus. This is the apostle who saw and worked many miracles along his mission trips in the name of Christ. This is a man who saw with special revelations the Lord Jesus. He saw revelations few people ever witnessed, and he's telling us, the church today, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. Now, the word here for mystery doesn't mean we can't understand anything about it or we have to have it revealed to know anything. It it has to do with the fact that we can't know the fullness of what's going to be expressed here. We can't plumb the depths of it. There's some of it we can't fathom. We can't go that deep. That's how profound Christ in the church is. Yes, the topic of Christ in the church is understandable at a base level. That's why we have the metaphor here of marriage, of the head and the body. But it's hard to fully fathom And we'll do our best to go through this passage and get a sense of this depth that the Apostle is speaking of. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. We're introduced to a very deep topic indeed. It's one of, if not the most important practical topics for us, the people of God. We consider Christ and the church this morning. In particular how the relationship between Christ and his church is gloriously mysterious. And really to boil it down at a very simple first blush level, Christ is the head of the church and the church is his body. We can understand that much for sure. But it says that this mystery is profound, Christ and the church. So, before we go into the passage, let's consider two important words people or entities that are introduced that we have to know, we have to be clear on before we go through Ephesians 5, 22 and following. First of all, who is Christ? Second, who or what is the church? Let's answer those two important foundational questions as we go in to Ephesians 5, 22 and following. First of all, who is Christ? Who is Paul talking about here? When he says the mystery is profound, Christ and the church. Well, Christ means anointed in the Greek language. And it's actually taken as a translation from the Hebrew, Messiah. 
Christ and Messiah. They mean the anointed one, the one anointed to do the saving as we understand the Messiah depicted in the Old Testament. This passage is talking about Jesus Christ. Jesus, his human name, means Joshua, the Lord saves or Savior. So this passage is referring to the Savior Messiah, he he and his church. That's what's so profound. Now, Jesus Christ is not just an angelic being. Jesus Christ is not merely a legendary or a mythical figure. Jesus Christ is not a mere man, although he is fully human. Jesus Christ is not simply a great teacher or a sage prophet. Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. Jesus is the second Adam who came to gain the victory the first Adam lost. We were under the first Adam and destined to the death that that Adam experienced upon his sinning and then soul death that occurs until the second Adam, Jesus Christ, comes to represent us. And in him we have his victory. He's the second Adam. Jesus Christ spoken of here, the one who is related to the church in this passage, in a profound way, in a mysterious way, he is the God-man. He is Emmanuel, God with us. There could not be another merely human person to take our representative role because Adam and all of us are tainted. So God himself has to become man to represent us and bring us the salvation. Jesus is the great and good shepherd. He is the chief shepherd. Jesus is the eternal great I am. He is the bread of life. He is the light of the world. Jesus Christ is the great high priest who offers himself as the sacrifice. He's the ultimate prophet, the word of God himself. He is the king of all kings. Jesus Christ is the holy one of God. Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose again, and Jesus Christ will come again. Jesus is the bridegroom of the church. The church is his bride. Verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Who or what is the church? Now, the word church is translated, or it's the translation of ekklesia, the Greek word, ek, out, klesia, called out, the called out ones. But it's also the very word that was used when the Old Testament, was, which is written in Hebrew, was translated into Greek which is the version Paul would have been most familiar with, or at least the one he taught from often. The word ecclesia was used wherever the Old Testament talked about God's assembly or God's people, the assembly of God. So ecclesia means the called out assembly of God. It's his people. He identifies with them. He calls them to himself. The Israel of God. The elect or chosen of God. God's assembly, as it says in the New Testament. The assembly of the upright, the congregation of saints. With Jesus as the good, great, and chief shepherd, we should not be surprised to find the church being called the flock of God. God's spiritual temple or God's spiritual building. Now, it's important to say, the church is not bound by a single denomination. The church is not a 
human organization or a human corporation. The church is not confined to a building. The church is not a political action group. The church is not limited to a certain race or a certain class or a certain country. It transcends all of that. The church is the household of God. God's spiritual temple, indeed, the bride of Christ. We read earlier from the Confession of Faith as a profession of what we believe the Bible to teach concerning the church. And it's important what is displayed there. The Catholic or universal church, which is invisible. Now, you notice it's Catholic with a small c, universal. That's one of the most oft-asked questions I get, and I understand this. I grew up Roman Catholic, so I uh, always thought of Catholic as the description of a denomination or a, a sect of Christianity. But it's used here, small c, to mean universal. It means it transcends um, any one body. It's universal the world over. There are members of Christ's church the world over in this way. And it's talking about the invisible church on the primary level. And there are local expressions of Christ's church. The Catholic or universal church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ, the head thereof. Eventually, we'll all be gathered in his presence in glory. Until that time, there's this, we're spread out. Under Christ, the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. The second section is helpful too. It says the visible church, now we're in one of the local expressions of the visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation like Israel before under the law. It consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion. And what the Westminster writers meant to say by true religion is those who proclaim the true gospel. That's the fundamental foundational identifying mark of the church, does it correctly grasp and promote or proclaim the gospel? You might say it crassly, church, you've got one job, and that's to get the gospel right, to understand who Christ is, to understand that we are alienated from God in our sinful state, and only Christ can bring us to God, and he brings us to God by his finished work on our behalf, and we must rest in him. A church must grasp that to be the church. Now, you can have a church that's messed up in that and have true members of the church in the congregation, but that's in spite of that church, small c church. The church has to get the gospel right, and then it flows from there. From the gospel, we recognize the fullness of what the Word of God tells us concerning our growth in the gospel, our growth in grace. He gives us signs to help us consistently be connected with and remembering what it is Christ has done for us. We call them sacraments. He gives us prayer so that we can commune with God at any moment because of Christ as our interceder and the Holy Spirit as the interpreter of our prayers. He gives us each other as the body of Christ. Uh, But where these things are, where you have the gospel clearly preached and and, in a disciplined administration of his signs, there you've got, at least at base level, his church. It consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children. and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. The way the gospel is clearly stewarded and preached and proclaimed is through the church 
in God's working through his church to make sure that's proclaimed. If you think to yourself, well, I became a believer once when I heard the gospel at Backyard Bible Club. Well, Backyard Bible Club got a clear understanding of the gospel because of the church's historic commitment to keeping it clear. You can't really find a way to escape the role that God has his people, Christ's body, in administering and proclaiming and evangelizing. That's the call he has on the church. When we recognize the relationship between the church and Christ, it makes even more sense. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now we can move to the passage, verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. So Christ is the head of the church, and the church is Christ's body. Starting with Christ as the head of the church, what does Christ do as the head of the church? That's what the passage really expresses. It makes the statement that he is head, and then what follows is a description of what the head does for us, what the head of the church is about. What does it mean that he is head? Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Here's number one. As Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Christ loves the church. That's what the head does. He loves the church. He has loved the church. How do we know it? He gave himself for it. Christ loves the church. He loves us, his people. The work of Christ that he performed for us on the cross flows from his love for us. Jesus is the lover of our souls. The phrase love of Christ, this refers to the love that he has shown towards his church. His love can be briefly summarized as his willingness to act in our best interest, the church's best interest, and you as a member of the church, especially in meeting our greatest need, our need for a reconciled relationship with our creator. Even though it cost him everything, and even though we were the least worthy of such a love, as our head, Jesus Christ loved us and loves us. It could not be more express than in his sacrifice for us. Paul wrote of this as a, you, you can imagine, as, it's his constant theme as this legalist, legalistic, doomed to hell Pharisee who discovered grace and he discovered the root of it is a love of God shown to him a sinner, completely unrelated to his merit. How excited he would be to be this apostle of grace, this apostle of God's love. It set him free. He wrote to the Romans concerning Jesus giving himself as the savior for the church, of the church because of his love. He said to the Romans and to us, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? As it is written, 
For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. You might think you're abandoned. But no, Paul says, to the church. Remember, Romans is written to the church. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels or rulers, things present or things to come, powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He loved us so much, he gave himself for us. And we are secure in him. In the passage before us in Ephesians, starts to unfold before us all this giving himself for us means. Look with me, verse 25. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What does this mean? He did so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus to the church as our head. He is our perfecter. He is our savior. He is our sanctifier. And the order here is important. If you look at verse 26, he gave himself up for, he died for us. Why? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water. There's an important order. He cleanses us by the washing of the water with the word. This is a picture of the baptism metaphor that tells us we're washed by his blood. And so it's talking about his cleansing us with his blood on the cross. That's that initial moment of our being made alive together with Christ. We're justified. We're cleansed of our sins at that moment, and you take on the righteousness of Christ. As far as God is concerned, when you rest in him, that is indicator he has put you in identity with Christ, in union with Jesus. And so you have Jesus' righteousness, and you're cleansed. You may not feel that way, but you are, because that's the legal relationship God has made between his son's death and you, and he's given you faith to lay hold of it. That's the first, that's the cleansing. But the passage says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her. Cleanses her first, but then he's about the work of sanctifying her, the church. What does sanctify mean? Well, it unfolds, verse 27. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor. So there's the work of sanctifying that the Lord's doing in the church, to the church, to ultimately present the church to himself in splendor. So we'll be glorified ultimately, eventually, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Now that's really true for us in Christ. Our blamelessness or righteousness, Jesus our righteousness. But he's doing the work of sanctifying us now in the here and now to make us more and more like his son. But ultimately that great transformation, the final redemption will happen at glory. When we go to meet him or when he comes, whichever happens first, we'll receive that glorification that's spoken of in the passage that will be presented ultimately holy and without blemish. So Christ not only saves us from our sin, but he continues to work in cleansing or in purifying, sanctifying, removing the spots and the blemishes through all manner of stuff, the stuff we deal with in life. These are all parts of the providential hand of God to work us more and more into Christ's likeness. Sanctify means to make holy or to make holy or separate, uh, that will we'll grow in his likeness. That's the work he does. And interestingly, in this life, when we spend all our time together on this earth, it's a very short time as far as eternity goes. 
um, will be in existence for trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions of years in eternity. And we only spend a little blip now. In this blip, we're focusing on the sanctifying part. We're focusing on what the Word of God says to us as people who believe in Christ, we're His, but how He would have us live now, what He'll do in our life, how He'll work in our life so that we become more like Him. And finally, He'll glorify us or bring us into the state of glorification at our own resurrection in its finality. Look at what it says in verse 29. It says something more about what Christ does as the head of the church. Remember, the metaphor was about husbands and wives. Talking about a husband, he says, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. So Jesus is actively engaged with our church, with the church in a wider level, with you as individual believers, to nourish you and value you and cherish you. He gives you what you need to grow to stay strong and healthy. And he values you. You're his bride. We're his bride. Our head loves us. He cleanses us. He sanctifies us. He nourishes us. He cherishes us. Why would he cherish us? We are with spot and blemish. But in Christ, no longer the Father looks at us like this because of what the Son has done. That's what the head of the church does for us. That is a profound mystery. I can't begin to explain Christ in the church. I can only try to work through this passage and ask God to help us really sense what it means to be the bride of Christ. We didn't endear ourselves to him. He chose to make us his bride for his great glory. The Westminster Confession of Faith in its eighth chapter says this wonderful, makes this wonderful statement about Christ and his church. To all those for whom Christ hath purchased redemption, he doth certainly and effectually apply and communicate the same, his redemption, making intercession for them and revealing unto them and in, in and by the word the mysteries of salvation, effectually persuading them by his spirit to believe and obey and governing their hearts by his word and spirit overcoming all their enemies by his almighty power and wisdom in such manner and ways as are most consonant with his wonderful and unsearchable dispensing of these things. That's what the head of the church does for the church, Christ. When Paul was writing to the Colossians, he writes a similar letter to the, that he does to the Ephesians. Listen how he says it to the Colossians and to us. And he is the head of the body, the church, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And earlier in Ephesians, when we just started this epistle back in the summertime, Ephesians 1 begins by telling the Ephesians, setting them up for all the riches that will come. It says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, the power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The chapter just before in Ephesians, in Ephesians 4, rather speaking the truth and love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, Christ. 
From him the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is, which, with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, making the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The head, Christ, what he does for the church. With Christ as our head, we have salvation from sin and death. We have eternal protection. We have a sustaining power for this life. We have the promise of his perpetual presence. I love the Heidelberg Catechism's practicality here. In question 32, a blunt question. But why are you called Christian? That's how it lists. But why are you called Christian? Because by faith I am a member of Christ, and so I share in his anointing. I am anointed to confess his name, to present myself to him as a living sacrifice of thanks, to strive with a free conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and afterward to reign with Christ over all creation for eternity. That's what the head does for us. That's what Christ does for us. Yes, the mystery is profound, and I'm talking about Christ in the church. But it says something here as we've been reading that we now need to consider. That the church, you and I, the called out ones of God, we are Christ's body according to Jesus' own statements and the apostle reassuring us of the same. So we understand what this means in the metaphor, the head controlling the body and the body does the work that the head uh, sends messages concerning. What does the body do? What should the body do in relationship to the head? If body You've seen what the head does. What should you do, if you will? What should we do, brothers and sisters, for the one who saved us, who sanctifies us, who protects us, who sustains us, and promises to deliver us to glory? What should we do? We should do whatever he says. We should do exactly everything he says and want to live our life for that purpose. It should be the most easy thing we've ever had to think about, about what should we do in response for the one who's given us everything. We should lay our life down for him. Jesus, what do you want me to do? It doesn't matter what happens, what do you want me to do? Look at verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So he's trying to explain something that would be a thornier to work out in humanity, husbands and wives, because the man is the head of the wife is not nearly as Christ-like as Christ. But trying to convince the married, a married couple that this is to be the case, he goes to what should be so obvious. You know, just like Christ submits to the church. Like, of course Christ submits to the church is almost the sense you get from Paul. And then he's trying to explain while compelling husbands to be that kind of head like Jesus is, that sacrificer, and wife to submit because of that, in that relationship. But he's saying, just almost as a matter of fact, now, as the church submits to Christ, of course we would, if we believe that he did all these things for us. Submit in everything. What else would we want to do? And here's the way we can look at this, brothers and sisters, as we consider the riches of Christ for us. We get to see Christ. We get to be with Christ. We get to serve him. We get to love him as he's loved us. We can love him back. We get to obey him. We get to promote him. We get to worship him. We get to appeal to him at any time. We get rest in him. The head of the human body controls the actions of the vestiges it's tied to. 
The brain sends impulses, sends messages, and the body follows what the brain tells it. When the body, the human body, doesn't follow the instructions that the head is sending, we would say something's really wrong. And we would reckon, in this side of the fall, that's, that's generally what starts to happen as we age. Our brain tells our body to do something and our body just can't do it or won't do it. That's the reality. We recognize that with age or with conditions or sicknesses or ailments. It's very, very, a very forceful illustration to say the head and how the head, the head controls what the body does. When there's a disconnect between mind and body, we would call it a dysfunction. And that's true here. Our head is Christ. We are to follow what our head tells us, commands us, or directs us concerning. And this relates to the importance of us recognizing that we are the body of Christ. Now, first of all, the body has to be in union with each other to follow what the head says. Um, If you have one part of the body that's dysfunctional or having convulsions or having some problem, and it can't, the rest of the body has to pause while the problem is going on, and they can't pay attention to the head. In 1 Corinthians 12, the apostle wrote there to a church that was very divided. The Corinthian people, the Corinthian church, struggled with divisions. A lot of what 1 and 2 Corinthians concerns practically is how to get over those divisions. And the apostle says, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it, trying to call them to recognize the body has to be together to follow what the head is directing. We are Christ's body. We seek our direction from our head, who is Jesus. We are Christ's body, meaning that we also seek unity and fellowship and peace with our brothers and sisters. To the Corinthians, talking about the fact that they were partaking in communion, which is an outward sign at least of our communion, our unity under the head, Christ, the apostle wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. He's really calling us to practice that unity together as a way of displaying our being under the influence and command of the head, who is Christ, so we can properly represent to the world Jesus. How will people know Christ? They'll know by his people and the way his people conduct themselves, by what they proclaim. Later, when he writes to the Romans, he said, I say to everyone among you to not think of himself more highly than he ought to think. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. We are Christ's body, brothers and sisters, and Christ in the church, this is a profound and glorious mystery. We lovingly, willingly, and joyously seek our direction from Christ, whom we love, our beloved. We are Christ's body. We are the physical representation of Christ in this world. The church is the organism through which Christ manifests his life to the world today. We are called to represent Christ as if he were walking like he did in the first century. And make no mistake, his message was plain. It was repent of sin. Come to him. And then through that changed life, the way that he would relate to everyone was with this compassion, with this empathy, always truthful, telling them what they needed to know, but recognizing 
their need for a Savior. They are sheep who are without a shepherd, and he came to be their shepherd. And the church has opportunity to express this love of Christ to the world by proclaiming with complete clarity what the gospel is, and then acting with one another in a unity about what our Savior says, overcoming the differences we have because our head is more important than than what convulsion we might be experiencing as an individual vestige of the body. We're the body, and as the body is unified under the head, we have an impact in the world that the world so desperately needs. So desperately needs. It's the way that the Lord grows His kingdom, grows His church, expands His body, is through His existing body operating under their head. This is a profound mystery. It's a great mystery. It's the most important mystery to me personally. It's what compels me. It's what makes me love you. Because you, I want to love what Christ loves. And he loves you. He loves the church. I just want to spend every minute of my life serving the people that Christ loved, the church. And I want to see more people come into his church. Christ has lived. Christ has died. Christ rose again. And here's the thing. You know Christ is coming back. Why is he coming back? He's coming for you. He's coming for the church that he loves. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, you told Peter, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Lord, it's so clear, it's so, uh, it's so blessed that you don't say, Peter, go build my church. You don't tell us to do that. You will build your church, O oh Lord. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Lord, we have only scratched the surface of this magnificent reality of Christ and the church. Please compel us as a local expression of the body of Christ to cherish our Savior all the more this day, knowing of his love for us. I pray this in his name. Amen.